0: Morning, and uh, thank you once again So give me the uh, privilege to share God's word with you. It's been a crazy few uh, few weeks, but here we are. Let me let me start that um, by saying that when a building is needed for use, it's good to know that somebody has prepared it for its specific purpose. On Sunday mornings, this building here is prepared our Sunday service and this is done by the deacons and the people that help the deacons and um, I've got to say they do a very good job in keeping the house in order they make sure that the seats are all in their place they make sure the lighting is right they uh, ensure that the temperature is comfortable for us to come and worship our God. They check all the facilities that are working. Kitchen appliances, sand equipment, toilets, etc. And then there's the appearance of the building, the gardens and the car park. All very nice and looking good but all this takes effort and it takes a lot of people to do these things making sure that everything's been looked after. Now to some these things might not be so important to us. We might say, well, what does it matter? We're coming here to worship God. We're coming here to uh, worship God. So does, it, does he really mind how the place looks like? Does it really matter what the place or how the place looks? Well, it's not about us. It's not about you or me. It's about what impression we make on our neighbours and the community around us. They won't be impressed if the place looks shabby and uninviting. Just recently I've um, visited a few specialist places to deal with a medical issue and uh, some of the places I went to, I was actually scared to walk into it. I thought, boy, you know. Other places were well maintained. They had a nice garden to walk through into. Everything in the building was clean and tidy. Everything seemed to be in its place. I felt more comfortable going into those places. It was a, I had a welcoming feeling. It gave me reassurance that these people knew what they were on about. So we need to know that we're on about. Now, the book of Acts has been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. But as, have, as we've learned through the series, these acts were not possible without the working of the Holy Spirit and the faith the apostles had in the strong name of Jesus and the power of his authority. We learnt back, from the moment the church was born and the spirit came upon it, Satan began his attack. Now John Stott in his book, The Message of Acts, notes that Satan attacks the church on three fronts. The first was physical violence, immediately after Pentecost, where he tries to crush the church by persecution. Failing to destroy the church from the outside, he attempts to infiltrate the church through Ananias and Sapphira, bringing dishonesty into the life of the church by deception to try and destroy the Christian fellowship. And his third and most subtle ploy is that of of distraction and diversion. This is where we're up to this morning. So we have a problem. On one hand, it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, in those days the number of disciples was increasing. What a good problem to have, eh? What a good problem to have. On the other hand, the excitement of church growth was tempered by people complaining. Now, the word used here for complaining is expressed as murmuring, and it's very similar to the word murmuring and grumbling of the Israelites against Moses back in Exodus chapter 16. So, we have some of the Jerusalem church members murmuring against the apostles who as we read in Acts 4, received relief money and were expected to distribute it equitably. So what do we make of this when such grumbling for a Christian is inappropriate? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 onwards tells us that we are to have the humility to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us, To the interest of others. And in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. But the complaint concerned the welfare of widows, whose cause God had promised in the Old Testament to defend. In Exodus chapter 22 and 22 onwards, God says, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 18, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. The church had accepted the responsibility to look after and support those widows who were in need. So a daily distribution of food was made to them. But there were two groups in the Jerusalem church. One group was the Hellenic or Grecian Jews. The other group were Hebraic Jews. In this instance, it says the Hellenic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews. Why? Because their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food it seemed the Hebrew widows were being given preferential treatment. Now, it's not suggested that this was done deliberately, and it's more likely to have come about from poor administration and perhaps a lack of supervision. But who exactly are these two groups? It has usually been supposed that the Hellenic Jews came from the Diaspora, that is, the dispersion of Jews from Israel where they settled in Palestine And spoke Greek. While the Hebraic Jews were the natives of Palestine and they spoke Aramaic. But it had to go beyond geography and language. Since Paul called himself a Hebrew, even though he came from Tarsus and spoke Greek. So here it is. The Hellenic Jews not only spoke Greek, but thought and behaved like Greeks. While the Hebraic Jews not only spoke Aramaic, but they were deeply immersed in the Hebrew culture. And, of course, there had always been rivalry between these two groups throughout history. The sad thing is that it continued in this new community of Jesus who, by his death, abolished all such distinction. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28... Paul says, there is no Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, for we are all in one in Christ Jesus. What a perfect picture of harmony, tolerance, and equality. We can't match that today. We fight for it, but we can't get it. But the Apostles saw a problem that was much deeper than cultural tension. If they were to get involved in the distribution of food and settling complaints, it would rob them of their time of preaching and teaching the word. The Apostles didn't impose a solution to the church, nor did they try and pin the blame on anybody Instead, they gathered all the disciples together to share the problem with them and participate to bring about a resolution. And it's not that the apostles regarded social work inferior to the pastoral work. It was a question of calling. So they made the proposal to the church, "'Brothers, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom.' They had to be both practically and spiritually minded. So the seven were chosen and given the responsibility to wait on tables. While the apostles concentrated their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The Greek word used to describe wait on is the verb from which we get the word deacon, And the noun for deacon can also be translated to minister or or servant. That means to attend to somebody's needs. Later we read about deacons mentioned in Philippians 1 and in First Timothy 3 we read, of course, of their qualifications. So the church saw the idea of the apostles' plan and this proposal pleased the whole group. Wow, that'd be great if you could please the whole group, wouldn't it? So it was put into effect. Now it has been pointed out from some commentaries that all seven had Greek names. They may all therefore have been Hellenic Jews, deliberately chosen to satisfy the group that were complaining, but this is speculative the more likely way forward would be that both classes of Jews were elected and this would be the fairest way. Whether they were Hellenic or not, the church, it says, presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Thus, commissioning and authorising them to exercise this ministry. Now, laying of hands is used Throughout the Old Testament, it was to be, it was used to confer blessing, such as the case of Jacob on Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis chapter 48, or to commission a person for a new responsibility, such as the, the priest Eliezer over, over Joshua to succeed Moses found in Numbers 28. In the New Testament, Jesus lays hands on the little children and blesses them in Mark chapter 10. And in this this, uh, chapter that we're looking at today, ordaining and commissioning, where the apostles prayed over the seven and laid their hands on them. And we also see it in Acts chapter 13 later, where prayer and laying of hands took place over Barnabas and Paul before they were sent out on their first missionary journey. There's a significant principle illustrated in this whole incident which is of great importance to the church today and that is this. God calls all his people to ministry. He calls people to different ministries. And those called to the ministry of the word must not allow themselves to be distracted or diverted from their priorities. In saying that, the work of the twelve and the work of the seven is the same. Because we are all here as servants. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many. found in Matthew chapter 20. The contrast between the ministry of the word on one hand and to wait on tables on the other does not mean that one task is inferior to the other. Both are Christian ministries, which are ways of serving God and his people. Both require spiritual people to exercise them, and both can be full-time Christian ministries. The only difference is the type of ministry which involves different gifts and different callings. I think we do a great disservice to the church whenever we refer to someone who is going to enter the ministry. All Christians, without exception... If we are followers of Jesus, have come not to be served, but to serve. In other words, called to ministry. And indeed, to give our lives to ministry. A very close friend of mine just recently said to me, he said, Sam, you've been involved with the church for so long. He says, when are you going to finish? I said, finish? I said, mate, I finish when God calls me home. That's when I finish. You never finish. This is a life of commitment. A commitment that leads to eternal life. Amen? This is not a club where I can relinquish my membership and walk away, although the government has made it that way. The only thing that might slow any of us down is our health or our age. But in saying that, God will have a transition or a redeployment plan. He'll find another job for you to do. We have so many here at Monty who who may not be so physically involved, but they spend a lot of time in prayer, don't they? That is a blessing to this church at Monty. The direct result of the action taken by the apostles in delegating the social work to the seven so they could concentrate on their ministry of the word was that the word of God spread. Have a look at verse 7a. Of course it would. The word cannot spread if we are not preaching it and teaching it. And I am glad that here at Montmorency Community Church, We haven't lost sight of preaching and teaching the word. Then, as a further result, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And it gets better. And a remarkable development. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 7B. Even though the priests were involved in the observances of the old covenant, some accepted the preaching of the apostles, which proclaimed that a once-and-for-all-sacrifice new covenant in Jesus Christ made the old sacrifices unnecessary. And they responded to the commands of the gospel. Now, the two verbs spread and increased, used in verse 7, are in the imperfect tense. This means that both the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church were continuous. In other words, it was happening and it continued to happen. Now here... Like throughout the story of the early church, we see Luke noting a summary of growth. I was just wondering, Andrew, if you're able to uh, put those first three up. I'll just go through these. These are, these are good to know. They came at the following crucial times, where we hear about the church growing. In Acts chapter twenty, uh, sorry, Acts chapter two, verse forty-one, when Peter addresses the crowd after Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, after Peter and John were proclaiming Jesus before they were seized and had to face the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, while the apostles healed many in Solomon's arcade. The next three. Here in Acts chapter 6-7, after the apostles' decision to give their attention to prayer and preaching, after Saul's dramatic conversion in, cha- in Acts chapter 9 and 31. After the wonderful conversion of the first Gentile, Cornelius. Followed by the death of Herod Agrippa I in Acts, tw- in Acts 12, 24. And then the next three. After the second Sorry, after Paul's missionary journey and the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. After the second and third missionary journeys in Acts chapter 19 verse 20. And after Paul's arrival in Rome where he preached boldly and without hindrance. In each of these verses we read that the church was spreading or growing or both. God's spirit was at work and no demon or human could get in his way. We have seen how the devil employed the three tactics in this strategy to try and destroy the church. First he tried through the Jewish authorities to suppress it by force. Secondly through the married couple Ananias and Sapphira trying to enter the church by deception and corruption. And thirdly through some unfair treatment of widows by distracting the leadership from prayer and preaching. If he had succeeded in any of these, the new community of Jesus would have been reduced to nothing from the start. But the Holy Spirit was at work and the apostles were sufficiently alert to detect the devil's schemes. So what does this mean for us today? We need that same spiritual discernment the apostles had to recognise the undermining activity of the evil one because our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Paul reminds us in Ephesians. and he he tells us to put on the full armour of God. We also need that same faith the apostles had, a faith that is strong in the name of Jesus Christ, by whose authority alone can defeat the powers of darkness. I'm really concerned because many churches and Christian organisations are being placed under a lot of pressure to accommodate today's modern-day thinking. But we must remain true to the gospel without compromise. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Being alert and aware of things that influence our thoughts and actions. And let me finish with this. Jesus did not accommodate any of the requests of the authorities. His job was to do the Father's will. Our responsibility is to continue to build on his kingdom, not ours. If the Holy Spirit is prompting, and you want to know Jesus this morning, Please come and speak to one of the elders and we can pray with you. And let us be encouraged with the words in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. No change. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that you are an unchanging God. You are our rock and our firm foundation. We thank you that you have made it clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give us the ability to discern between spirits as we trust in your guidance and direction in all matters and especially those relating to your church here at Montmorency. Strengthen us with courage and boldness to speak the truth of your salvation to all we come in contact with throughout this week. Separate us with your love and blessing now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.